Welcome to the Oklahoma Adventist Podcast. Every year in January, the Oklahoma Conference brings its pastors together at Wawoka Woods for a few days of rest and professional development. This year, our first speaker was Dr. Richard Davidson from Andrews Theological Seminary, and he presented a series of lectures entitled The Third Angel's Message in Verity. This series of presentations looked at the topic of justification by faith through the Old Testament to gain a greater understanding of how the third angel's message is righteousness by faith in verity, as we're told in the spirit of prophecy. We were incredibly blessed by this series of presentations, and we hope that you will be as well. So before we can dig into the justification in the Old Testament and specific passages, here is where Catholicism via Augustine went off track. Because in the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek New Testament, the word for justify always means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. And I've got all the details there. Tzadak consistently means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. And Isaiah 53, which we're going to come to this afternoon, where is the beautiful servant song about Jesus. He is declaring us righteous. He's not making us righteous there. That is the foundation of our salvation. And he does make us righteous, but that's not the foundation of our salvation. That's not justification. And in the New Testament, I, uh, oh, it's the word, my, primarily it means to declare in the right. It doesn't mean to make righteous. It's a legal courtroom term to describe the pronouncement of the judge that the one under trial is acquitted, declared in the right, justified. And if, unfortunately, if the Latin meant the same thing, Satan would have found some other way to distort the gospel. But he had an easy way here because in Latin, in the Vulgate, which became the dominant translation of Western Christianity, the Greek and Hebrew words for justified are translated by the Latin justificare, which in its etymology drawn from Roman culture meant to make just, and which Augustine interpreted to mean to make righteous. And so here, as they studied from the Latin, and the Latin became the Bible for the church, and they put away the Hebrew and they put away the Greek, they read justify and they thought make righteous. So it was very easy then for righteousness by works, Jesus making us righteous and then pronouncing us righteous based upon what was in us. It was very easy for that to slip into the church. And Martin Luther first studied the Bible. And then when he became a doctor, he started getting into Hebrew, and then he start, taught himself Hebrew, and then he taught himself Greek, and he eventually translated the whole Bible from the Hebrew and from the Greek. And when he had his aha moment in the Reformation was when he saw the meaning of this word. All the church fathers that had said, Justification means to make you righteous and miss the point. Because that's not what the Hebrew says. That's not what the Greek says. 
That's not what the original says. God declares you righteous because of the blood of Jesus. Because his righteousness is credited to our account. And then slowly, yes, he wants to transform us and change us. By beholding, we become changed into his image. That's his goal. But that never can be the ground of our salvation, or else we have no assurance. Those quotations. I think a good example is the thief on the cross. There you go. He was perfect when Jesus accepted him. And so we'll come back to these statements. Can I look within to have evidence that I am now acceptable to God because of my performance? No, the closer we come to Jesus, can you repeat it? The more sinful we will appear in our own eyes. Ellen White and Steps to Christ. Never look within for evidence of your acceptance because you'll never find something there that'll give you courage. It'll always discourage you. That doesn't mean we're not making progress in the Christian way, but we'll never be up to his up to the standard that we can say, okay, God, now accept me based upon what's happened inside of me. That will come eventually, at just at glorification. Mm. We'll talk about that toward the end of the day. There's a different timing for glorification than most of us have thought. Just a short difference, but it's a very important difference. All right, so with that understanding, let's go to Genesis 1 to 3, where we just got taken by our brother for our devotional. And I'd like to emphasize the same passage as he did, but I want to start with Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, where you have God saying, let us make who? Let us make Adam image. It's the word Adam, Ha-Adam. And so God made Adam. So Adam is the word in Hebrew, first of all, that means human. Let us make humans in our image. It's the word for humanity. We're all Adam. We're all humans. Now I have a strange situation in my family, and that is my wife's cousins, they all have the last name human. H-U-M-A-N-N. And so when I got married into the family the first Thanksgiving, I was told we're going to go to the human family reunion. And I said, I thought I was part of the human family. What is this special elite group of humans? And they all went to Union College and they all sang in a quartet. And yeah, that's quite a story of those seven human brothers of the human family. We're all part of the human family. But how many people in the Bible were named Adam as a proper name for a person? We know of one. Can you think of any others? Jesus is the other one, the second Adam. There's no other Adam, person, Adam. That's not an accident. I think God designed it that way. The word Adam, Adama, means the ground. And so he took the Adama and turned it into Adam, human. And then he calls, in Genesis 5, it says he calls, in the day that God created them, he made them the image of God, he created them, blessed them, and called them human in the day they were created. 
And so Adam and Eve together are called human, Adam. We're all part of Mr. and Mrs. Adam. And uh, now like I'm David's son. Started to uh, with the David, and then you got the son of David. We're all Ben Adam, if you please, son of Adam. What is this telling us about the gospel? It's telling us that there's one Adam, and he is the representative of all the other Adams that would be born. He's the, we're in corporate solidarity with him. As Paul put it in Romans 5, when Adam sinned, we were all constituted sinners by nature in Adam. And likewise, when we get in Christ, we are constituted righteous in Christ. And so the gospel is based upon this Adam-Christ typology. Adam is the representative head of all humanity. When he sinned, we all sinned in him as it were. And we're constituted sinners. That's why I believe it's very important for us to teach as part of the gospel that we are sinners by nature. We're born alienated from God. We're born sinners. And when we become in Christ, we're still sinners. The last words of Paul in his mouth almost was, chief of, I am the chief of sinners. And here it's at the end of his life, he still called himself the chief of sinners. And all are constituted sinners in Adam. Now that's important. When we go to these, to the first text, the Proto-Evangelium, the first statement of the gospel, and that's in Genesis 3.15. Please turn there with your uh, Bible or your computer or whatever, or from your memory, you, most of you know this, but let's do, let me do a little writing on the invisible whiteboard here, okay? Because did you know that most Christians do not believe that this text refers to the Messiah? Liberal Christians, none of them believe that it refers to the Messiah. They teach that this is what they call an etiology, an explanation for why something is as it is today. And why are women usually afraid of snakes? It's because of this first thing that happened. And so this is an explanation of the fear of snakes among women and their posterity like me who tends to be afraid of snakes too, and I'll mention more about that in a minute. But is the Messiah here in Genesis 3.15? There's even evangelical, major evangelical writers that are saying, no, it's just about the struggle between good and evil. Here's a simple way to show the Messiah is here. Because the Bible was written in poetic parallelism. Okay, so here, let's go down the parallelism here. He's doing a contrast. I will put enmity, hatred, God says. And who's he talking to? To Satan, the serpent, right? Between you, the serpent, so here's the serpent, and the woman. In Genesis 3, who's the woman? Not the church yet. Woman. Is, so here's the woman, Eve, and Satan that are going to have a conflict. Already there, you have a hint of the gospel. Because as soon as Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit, their natures were curved inward in selfishness and they start blaming one another and blaming God. And so 
any, they lost their hatred of evil, and God is already telling us, I'm going to implant a hatred of evil in your heart. Eve for Satan. Already a hint of the gospel. Praise God for that, otherwise we'll be lost. But he wants to give that divinely implanted evil. You? Who's that? The woman? Now over here, the next level down, we're going to go three levels down. Your seed... Who's that? The seed of the, of the serpent. Spiritual descendants of the serpent. The followers of the serpent, right? Now the word seed, like in English, can be singular or it can be a plural idea. What we call a... Anyway, it's a plural idea. Like we have, you sow the seed, you sow many. Collective singular, that's right. Collective singular or a singular. So when it comes from you down to your descendants, everyone agrees that's a collective. It's talking about the spiritual descendants of the serpent. And how about who are the seed of the woman? The followers of God, because Eve was a follower of God. And so here are, is the great conflict between this two, these two groups. There's only two groups in the world. The ones that are the descendants of Satan, the spiritual seed of Satan, and the spiritual seed of the woman. But now, notice the third level as we're moving down through the picture of this verse. Comes back and it says, And he shall bruise your head. Who's the you here? Back to the serpent. He's still around. At the end of the story, he's still around. Your head. And you, who's the you? The serpent. And now what? let's go to this side. He shall bruise. Wait a minute. I thought this was a collective singular. You should use the word they. And in Hebrew, that's always true. If it's a collective singular, more than one, when there's a pronoun connected to it, it's in the plural. But here it shifts. Do you notice? It's not in the plural. It narrows down to one masculine singular he. He will crush, bruise your head, a fatal blow from which you will not recover. And you will crush or snap at his heel. He'll die, but he'll rise again. And so you have a picture of a movement from the corporate solidarity of Eve, who was the mother of all living. So she was, she's basically our mother. And then you have a move down to the seed. And then you have this representative of the seed, masculine Messiah. Now, who was the first one that saw this? Do you think Adam and Eve understood this? Do you think Adam and Eve understood if she was talking about, he was talking about the Messiah? Can you give me evidence for that? In Genesis 4 and verse 1 and 2, we'll just stay with verse 1. Now Adam knew, had intercourse with Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man, my version here says here, from the Lord. Do you have the King James Version? Do you notice, are there any words that are italicized there? From. The word from is not italicized? Okay. It's not in the Hebrew. It's not in the Hebrew. It doesn't have the word from. 
It doesn't have the word with the help of the Lord. King James Version, I think some, some of the versions say with the help of. It says, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. Oh. The Lord. There's no with there. There's no from there. And Eve is basically thinking Cain is going to be the Messiah. Imagine her disappointment when he becomes the first murderer instead of the Messiah. And so then when she names her, I mean, there's Cain and Abel, and then when she names her next son, she calls him Seth, which is the word in Hebrew, which is a substitute. Here is the one from which the Messiah will come. And she gets it. And that's the line of Genesis 5, the line of the Messiah, the seed. And they began to call on the name of the Lord. And here's this group, the sons of God. And then there's the the sons of men, the daughters of men. There's the line of there's the line of Cain. There's the line of the serpent. So you got the lines going down down the picture. So Christians, uh, the Jews never saw this. Did the Jews see this? Did they see the Messiah here? Yes. We have the Septuagint, the Greek translation before there was ever a Christian, third century, second century A.D. translation of this verse, and in that translation. The word for seed in Greek is sperma, like your sperm. And it is neuter in gender, neuter. There's masculine, feminine, and neuter. It's a neuter word, neuter noun. Now, if you have a pronoun in Greek with a neuter noun, what's that pronoun got to be parsed as? Is it going to be masculine or feminine? got to be neuter. That's a fundamental rule of Greek grammar. You don't break easily. But the Septuagint broke it in this one case, in the whole book of Genesis, and maybe the whole Bible. They translated, it says, and your seed between you and the woman, between your sperma and her sperma, and then it translates it as autos, which is the pronoun in the masculine singular, he shall. And it should have been translated in neuter because the word for seed is neuter. So it shifted. And we see the messianic interpretation is not just Christian reading back into the text. Why am I saying all this? Because this is the foundation of the gospel right here in this chapter, right here in this verse, protoevangelium. If we get this right, We have the right trajectory going all the way through. Have you ever stopped to picture what is described here? Can I give you a hint of how I see it? I mentioned that I'm not too fond of snakes. I'm terrified of snakes. And I have good reason, I think. Good excuse. I grew up in Southern California, and I had rattlesnakes all around me in the hills. And in the fifth grade, I got a tetanus shot for tetanus and learned that it had the same properties that the antivenom of a a snake bite does, the horse serum, and I am deathly allergic to horse serum. So I almost died from that tetanus shot. And so for me, if I get bit by a rattlesnake, I will either die from the venom or I will die from the antivenom. I don't have much choice. Why? (laughs) That's why. I have a legitimate fear. 
and, and in, in Michigan, they tell me there are no poisonous snakes. They're all south of the border in Indiana. There's the Indiana rattlesnake, but it, but it comes it to, no, yeah, it comes to the border and it sees the sign, welcome to Michigan. It never crosses. I'm sorry. I don't believe that. So when I'm out in the garden, my daughter and my son can testify to this. I'm out in the garden preparing for the garden for the springtime. And they heard it every spring. I heard a garter snake there and they hear dad and oh, I'm freaking out out there. And so they come running to help me the first couple of times. What are you doing? Screaming at a garter snake. And so they don't even come. I could get bit and die out there and I'd stay out, wither away in the field. They never come and help me. It's like the wolf. You call wolf too many times. So here I am in Arizona conference, which is surrounded by rattlesnakes all over the place. And I was given the wonderful task as a young pastor at junior camp to be the chief wrangler of 30 horses. The only problem is I had never ridden a horse in my life. I grew up in Southern California. Maybe a horse, maybe a ride up at Griffith Park a couple of times. I had no clue what to do, how to get on a horse. Now I'm chief wrangler teaching riding all day at camp. So the bookworm that I am, I go to the library and check out a book on horses to make sure I know which side to get on and how to put the saddle on. And I try to learn what I could and then Thank God. He sent a camper who was one of the counselors that owned horses. And she became the behind the scenes. Okay, now you do this. So I was, you know, here was my horse, Shadrach. I love Shadrach. It's a beautiful horse. And I had a dog, a, a Australian shepherd that could jump eight feet high. When we're in Flagstaff, Arizona, he got put in a pound, outdoor pound, eight foot fence. I came to see him. He just walked, whipped right over the fence and came into my arms. And I still went in and told him and paid my money and stuff, but we could have just walked away. Cause, so we, we rode all day long on the horse. I did. I rode all day long. And then when he got tired toward the end of the day, I would just pat on the saddle and he would leap up on the saddle with me. And so here was me with my cowboy boots and my cowboy hat, cowboy boots and my dog and my horse, Shadrach, riding off into the sunset. But we often encountered rattlesnakes. I wasn't too afraid because I was way up here. And so we avoided them. I didn't have any kids. And that was a lot of kids. To, you know what it's like when you don't have any kids and you suddenly are in charge of a hundred of them for a week, every week. So I was tired. I said, I got to get away. Can you tell me where I can find some solitude someplace where I don't need to meet people or try to teach them how to ride a horse. Or, so they said, yeah, there's this great place, just a few miles, maybe 30 miles away. Told me how to get there. Told me how to get there. So I went by myself and I didn't know until later that, yeah, the name of the place was Rattlesnake Basin. It's actually where all the rattlesnakes of that area breed. And so I, I you know, so I climbed, I, I hiked up the trail by myself. And I'm, I left to hike. I, I do a lot of hiking. So here is this log across the trail. You don't ever step up on a log. That's too much effort. You just step over the log and you don't have to lift yourself up so high. And something impressed me. Step on the log. It was a pretty high log. Stepped up on the log and was ready to step down. And I saw right there was coiled a diamondback rattlesnake ready to grab me. 
And I'm sorry, I'm a guy from the, the days of Michael Jordan. So I, I was given the legs of Michael Jordan and I leaped 20 feet in the air and fell on a heap on the other side and trembled and find my way out of that rattlesnake basin. I was not about to put my foot and volunteer stepping on no. the head of that snake. No, no. But Jesus did. Think about it. This is the picture. Jesus takes off his sandal, as it were, and he steps knowingly, voluntarily, on the head of Satan, the poisonous viper of the universe, knowing it would kill him, but knowing that it would bring an antivenom that would be efficacious for that's the picture of the gospel. Jesus substituting his life for mine. Jesus dying in my place as my representative. And he did it for me. That's the picture of this first gospel story. It's a picture of substitutionary atonement. And I love the way Ellen White described this in 1 BC 1085. The instant man accepted the temptation of Satan and did the very things that God had said he should not do. Christ, the Son of God, stood between the living and the dead, saying, let the punishment fall on me. I will stand in man's place. Brothers and sisters, there's the gospel. Jesus died for you and me. He substituted his life for mine. And if it ended there, that'd be great. But it doesn't end there in Genesis. There's the description of his substitutionary sacrifice. But a few verses later then, we come in verse 21, to what again we read this morning, I heard from the devotional. And also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skins and clothed them. Some would say this is just because it started getting cold with sin coming in and so they needed to have some warm clothes. Well, that may have been part of it. But is that all that's there? Is that all that's here? How can we know? Again, I keep asking this question. What is in the text that shows me that I have the right to look at a deeper, a deeper picture? Here's what shows me this. Adam and Eve before they sinned, were naked. Remember that? Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And Adam and Eve were both naked, and they were not ashamed before each other. But then in chapter 3, when they ate of the fruit, it says in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings. Now, brothers and sisters, here's one example of where, if you don't know Hebrew, it's good to at least have a place to look up in a, a lexicon the different words, because there's two different words for naked here. And it makes everything make sense. The first word, eron, means not clothed in the normal way. They weren't clothed like we are, with regular clothes on. How were they clothed? Ellen White says, clothed with robes of light. 
But what if you're telling a Baptist about it and don't want to use Ellen White? You go to Psalm 104. Because Psalm 104 is talking, is giving the six, the six days of creation in the exact same order. And the first couple of verses talking about light, instead of saying, let there be light, Psalm 104 verse 2 says, and God clothed himself with light as with a garment. If God is clothed with robes of light and glory, and we are made in his image, outwardly as well as inwardly, then how were Adam and Eve clothed? With robes of light. It's, it, it's something you can show from the text. So this is an innocent nakedness. They were, it was not a sign of their sinfulness. But when you get to verse 7, it says, they knew that they were naked, and now here is the word arum. Instead of arom, it's arum. And it means totally, totally, shamefully, guiltily. They covered themselves with fig leaves, and then that nakedness was covered, and they were no longer naked. Is that right? I, I usually say this first. I said Adam and Eve were naked, and then they covered themselves with fig leaves, and so now they're not naked. Then you read the next verse, and when God comes walking in the cool of the day, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Adam says, I'm hiding because I'm afraid because I'm naked. Wait a minute, he had on the fig leaves. How could he say he was naked? Do you see? The nakedness is more than physical nudity. The nakedness is a sense of shame and guilt. And so if the nakedness is a shame, is Adam and Eve's shame and guilt because of their sin, then the clothing, are you seeing where I'm going? The clothing by the skins of the animals has to be a clothing more than the physical nudity. Because the nakedness more than physical nudity is, it's a spiritual nakedness of soul. And so the clothing is the clothing with the robe of the Lamb that was slain for Adam and Eve. Who killed that first lamb? Does it say in the text? It doesn't say, but we have a good idea because this is the first offering, sin offering. And when you go to the book of Leviticus, who is it that, who is it that kills the animal? It's the, the, the animal for a, a sin offering that a person does. If he's committed a sin, he brings the animal. Who kills the animal? The sinner does. So I see God handing Adam the knife. Oh my. And saying, Adam, and he tells him the plan. And he says, this animal is going to represent my son that's going to come and die for you. You don't know what death is. You need to, I don't want to do this. I can see tears in God's eyes, he says. I created this animal to live forever. But Adam, you need to understand how horrible sin is. And he gives him the knife and maybe God holds back the throat so that Adam can slip, slip the knife and watch the lamb slump into his arms. Ellen White describes how horrible Adam felt just to see one leaf fall from the tree. Imagine how he felt watching this beautiful creature slump into death. And then God explaining to him, my son's going to die for you, Adam and Eve. And furthermore, he's going to cover you with his great robe of righteousness. 
so that I will look and when I see you, I won't see the sinner. I will see my, my son and his righteousness covering you with his robe. It's all there in Genesis. It's just embryonic. It's just the outline. But when you open and you start seeing what's happening, you see basically these various things that are affirmed by Paul. God announces from heaven the judicial declaration, I will stand in your place. There's this judicial declaration, opposite of condemnation. It's not an ethical condition. God doesn't suddenly change Adam and Eve and their natures are all perfect and they're transformed and sanctified. But instead he announces because of the death of my son, you will be justified. It's a description of justification. It's based upon the external righteousness of Christ, not the inter inherent righteousness. It's that robe that covers, not an infused righteousness that makes them acceptable before God. And the sole ground of justification is the substitutionary death of Jesus and the imputed merits of his righteousness. If someone asks me, why do you make so much of this view of the atonement? Aren't there other models, other metaphors that are used? Yes, there are. The healing metaphor is a good metaphor of something that happened at the cross. Jesus made provision for our healing. And the moral influence is a good metaphor as far as it goes, because as we see what Jesus does for us there, our hearts are broken and we're drawn toward him. There's nothing wrong with these metaphors, but those who proclaim those metaphors usually deny this one. And that's where the problem comes. Because this judicial forensic metaphor is the foundation for all the others. It's there in Genesis 3. Jesus died as my representative substitute. The substitutionary atonement. And the imputed righteousness of his robe. God gives the foundational basics of the gospel here in Genesis 3. So if someone tries to argue with me about the nature of the atonement, I take them back here. Said, Here's where God is first showing us what the story is. And it's all basically here. Justification is a free gift. And that's so well shown here with not the fig leaves of their own devising. That didn't cover their but it's God's gift of his robe of righteousness. Thank you for listening to the Oklahoma Adventist Podcast. Throughout the year, we're going to be sharing with you seminars, sermons, and trainings that happen across our conference. So be sure to click subscribe so you're notified whenever new content is released.